Well, let's get started this morning, and we welcome you all to Sabbath School. Today, we are doing Lesson 12 in the Agents for Hope, and we're going to be talking about Philip today. Not the disciple Philip, but rather the story of a man who was chosen as one of the deacons in the church, in the early church. And this story is found in Acts 6 through 8, but we'll probably allude to um, the uh, Acts chapters 1 through 5 as well, because that sets us up to what was going on with the church at that time. And the apostles received the Holy Spirit, you can remember in in chapter 1, and then in uh, chapter 2 it tells us quickly how the church grew, how the Holy Spirit uh, was very prominent, and we often call this the, um, the early reign, and then the persecution of the church, particularly Peter and John, they talk about stories about Peter and John, how they were persecuted, thrown in prison, and then it talks a lot about the harmonious church of uh, the, the first Christian church, how, how they loved each other and cared for each other, and that there was diversity in the church. Uh, It was all kinds of people with different cultures, different languages, different backgrounds. It wasn't just the Jews now, because now uh, this message had spread further. Um, And so that was exciting, I thought. And then we start with the disagreements in the church. But let's just go back, read uh, Acts 2, 42 through 47. I really want us to get a gist of what was going on in the in the church at that time. Acts 2, 42 and 47. Somebody read it real loud for us. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And my Bible says it was a happy church, a harmonious church. I love that. You know, think about a church that was harmonious in every way, was always happy, uh, cared for each other, loved each other. The people that were rich shared their um, resources with those that were poor. Um, They gave to one another. Um, People that were rich sold their properties so that other people could have monies. And everything was harmonious. And then... um, Uh, Mrs. White tells us in Acts of Apostles, Satan knew, I'm quoting now uh, on page 88, Satan knew that so long as this union continued to exist, he would be powerless to check the progress of gospel truth. And he sought to take advantage of former habits of thought and the hope that thereby he might be able to introduce into the church elements of disunion. So he knew that as soon as things were not harmonious, as soon as people were starting to uh, back uh, bite and scratch each other's eyes out, that this would not um, herald the, the, the elements of the gospel. And so what did he use? He, used the, he took advantage of former habits of thought. So again, he took advantage of that selfishness, that selfish desire, that... Um, 
disharmony that often we, I find anyway in my own self, comes up. And I want to think, well, aren't I better than that person? Or, you know, surely I'm, uh, I know more than he or she. And so the selfishness comes up oftentimes, and it did in the church, and that's what created some disunion in the church. But think for a moment before that happened. Have you been in a church? Have you experienced a church that's full of harmony, full of love, full of giving? Or do you have a circle of friends that are that way? Or are you in a group that is that way? That you watch out for each other. And this is one of the things, I know we have a big church here. But this is one of the things that um, Paul, my husband, is trying to do is create a smaller, uh, smaller areas in the church where you care for one another. We can't care for 3,000 people. I can't care for 3,000 people. You can't either. And so we're trying to create smaller groups. Uh, Karen and I are in a group together, and we co-lead. And so today we're feeling comfortable co-leading again um, because we can uh, we look out for each other. Uh, and um, it's delightful that I get to work with Karen as well. So not only do I get to be in her group, but I also get to work with her, and we watch each other's back there as well. Have you been in a situation where you're in a group or in a church where that has happened and you care for each other? Have you felt that? I hope you have. Well, the little church I left, a year ago? Yes. That way. Okay. Oh, it was small. It was small? About 50? Well, no, it's about 120, I think. 120? But it was kind of a come and go, some of them, you know, but mm-hmm. generally speaking, everything, we were quite close. Caring for each other? Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's a nice <coughs> atmosphere to be in, isn't it? If we miss somebody, we had to find out, you know. Okay. So you called them. Yes. That's good. How about family? Wouldn't family be in that in that too? You would include family as far as those groups that we have? Friendship groups like that. Like, um, I think of Sharon and I share a friendship group where we're always mm-hmm. there for each other no matter what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yep. If you're doing something, you, you help each other. Right. Mm-hmm. I see that a lot. I think that's good. And so um, let's jump then in Acts to what happened when the dissension arose and what was the dissension all about? Acts 6. 6, 1 through 6. Somebody read that. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Greeks against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in daily ministration. But then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, Look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Arvinus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, when they had prayed, they laid their hands on. So this is what happened. They, they were, became jealous. 
And they were like, our widows aren't getting the same as your widows are getting. And um, there, there was some dissension in the church. And they couldn't handle it. Um, all the, Peter, um, Paul, uh, let's see, who was it? Peter and S- Stephen, all those preachers, they couldn't handle all that dissension. What are we going to do? And so from that came this idea of creating a deacon in the church, someone who would help with those things. Where else did that happen in the Old Testament? Moses. Right, with Moses, where it was his father-in-law, wasn't it, that said, hey, you've got to have some help. Uh, You can't lead all these people and all their little problems. And so he divided uh, and created more leaders within the church. So... I think this is a good thing. Do we do this today in our church? So we've got elders in our church who have certain responsibilities, and then we've got deacons and deaconesses as well that help with different things in the church, and I think that's a good thing. And those are good things, but they, it arose from something that was a so- solution to a problem. Yeah. So. Well, it makes the rest of us lazy. We say, all the deacons will do it. Okay. So maybe the ideal was that we all be doing this all the time, but because of human nature, we had to have people designated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what does it mean uh, to be a deacon then? Or let's, let's go further and put another gender into it, a deaconess. What does it mean to be a deacon or a deaconess to you? It means responsibility. Responsibility, okay. What else? What does deacon had, deaconhood or deaconesshood mean? It's sort of mothering the church if you're a deaconess. Mm-hmm. You try to fill some needs, whether it's a meal for a funeral or mm-hmm. um, an event in the church that needs help. Mm-hmm. Okay, and does the deacons keep the doors open? And they kind of father the church. They father the church, right? Okay. Do they tend to have a servant function? Do they tend to do some of the things that maybe... I just remember when I came of age and I learned that there was a hierarchy of the men who wore suits in my church, that there was a deacon and an elder, and they were not the same. To a little kid, you didn't know the difference. But in looking back, um, there was something... There was a hierarchy because I think the deacons did the more menial things, the more um, necessary jobs um, in contradistinction to the elders and teach mm-hmm. preachers and teachers mm-hmm. and stuff. Well, it was more, um, an elder was more up front, more teaching, right. preaching kind of a thing. In a smaller church, you'll also get an elder to be the lay pastor or the preacher as well when mm-hmm. the other, when the They're... pastor has gone to the other church, if they have a two or three church district. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's more of an upfront thing, whereas the deacon serves. But it's all service, isn't it? Servant orient service. Is there a difference between servant and service? Servants are required to do work for their masters. Service is just out of the heart. You're giving what you can give. Okay. That seems to be a connotation that we use a lot. Do we think also of servant being very slave oriented too, perhaps? You do it because I told you to. This is your responsibility and that's all you do. And I don't really care that you understand or get it. You just have to do it. And there's not normally time spent with the slave or the servant to get them to understand and to 
decide that they want to do it. Uh, that seems to be a distinction that we make in this class, is mm-hmm. that um, growing to where doing the exact same thing as a servant, but for different reasons, seems to be something that we want to evolve to, and yet we're called to be servants yeah. many times. But let me think also of a different servant. And uh, what about Joseph? He was a servant, but he was in charge of Potiphar's house. He didn't, I mean, Potiphar, it says, doesn't, didn't even know what was going on in his household. Joseph knew. Right. So he was a servant of a different kind. He wasn't someone who was told what to do, but rather took charge. So maybe our slant on servant is limited, that servant actually encompasses a much broader uh, variety of service, mm-hmm. and that here we have a servant, I mean, his class was servant. He, would, he was never going to be um, in the, I guess, the... The, the echelon. Uh, he, would, he was never going to work his way up beyond mm-hmm. what he was, mm-hmm. but he was indeed an um, uh, intelligent servant. And a thinking one, mm-hmm. because he ran the household, made sure that he had plenty of funds and was doing good business. So... Uh, we tend to think about servants as being very menial tasked and told what to do, but in this case, Joseph was quite a, a well-thought-out servant. I mean, he knew what was going on. What kind of servant does God want us to be? Because surely, surely he does want us to be a servant. Didn't he practice servanthood himself when he was here on earth? I think it depends on the master. If the master is a good master, for instance, in slavery, I think the slaves, some of them loved their master and would do anything for them. And when they were set free, they didn't even want to leave their home because it was such a good home. Mm-hmm. But then there were the taskmasters that were so cruel and harsh that they only did it because they had to do it, not because they loved their master. Mm-hmm. So if we have a master that we can love and he doesn't ask more than uh, we can do it's a good analogy because that's probably the way it was with Joseph and Potiphar. They loved each other, and that's why Potiphar never, ch- never killed him, whereas that would have been what he should have done, right? He knew and he loved him, so he threw him in prison instead. So I think that's a really good point, Lisa, because um, it has everything to do with it because what happens when you, are, when you are beaten and put down a lot is you get, create this spirit of, Rebellion, right, a spirit of rebellion, which we don't really want to um, propose here as a servant of God. Do you want to be a rebellious servant, or do you want to be a servant that loves their master? Surely we want to be one that loves their master. So it makes a difference what you think your master is like, doesn't it? And if you look at Christ's washing the feet of the disciples at the Last Supper, here, you know, talk about one who knew the Father and he knew the Master. Um, and he, it, it seems to me like that is such a, um, you know, dichotomy in thinking. You know, here he is the Master. He is um, God himself. And the service that he chose was something that was too menial even for the, the disciples to partake in. And... Um, Linda and I have an opportunity every, every, every single day to touch the feet of the people that come to us and are looking for a total body exam. And it, it, I don't think a day goes by that someone doesn't say, 
Like, what are you doing? Like, it's kind of like Peter said, you know, um, Lord, don't touch, don't my, touch feet. my feet. Don't don't you wash my feet. That's too menial. And don't look in between my toes. <laughs> and and I, I think people like they they're kind of shaking their heads like they wouldn't think, you know, you know, the doctor or whatever is is going to be digging toe jam out between my toes because I wore socks that were fuzzy. And and yet I think that that sets up. I, I think that every time this kind of um, discussion happens with my patient is that m- the, the joy that Jesus must have had to say, but no, this is what I want to do. This is, this is what needs to be done first off. And I want to show you that like, it's not what you're thinking. Like it's not a big deal. And you can do that to other people, that mm-hmm. same level of um, intimacy. It's intimate to be between someone's toes and, and, <laughs> you know, and looking at people naked and stuff. And so, I, I just think that the servant and, uh, metaphor that we have with Jesus and the disciples is something that is um, very moving, and it destroys hierarchy and echelons and whatever. It just destroys that. And let's keep in mind that uh, I think being a servant is what Jesus wants us to be. Yes, he wants us to be his friends, too, but it makes so much of a different like, difference, like Lisa said, who your master is. And so do you have it right? who your master is. Do you know who he is? Does he love you uh, so much so that you will allow him even to wash your, wash your feet? Um, will you allow him to be your servant as well? And will you love him back so much that you want to do anything for him as well? I think that's the biggest difference there. The um, Sabbath school lesson this week talks uh, about the stoning of Stephen as kind of the launching point in Acts 8 for the story of Philip. And remember that after Stephen uh, was stoned, this is when the persecution really stepped up. And who was it that was the biggest persecutor? Saul, Saul right. Okay. So maybe we should start at chapter 8, verses 3 through 8. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house, He dragged off men and women, put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in the Sanhedrin and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So it starts out by saying, you know, like again, uh, Linda describes that this is when the persecution happened. And so um, one version that I read has it in verse 5 that Philip fled to the city of Samaria. So the question is, is, um, uh, you know, what was the motivation there? Was he sent there? Was he commissioned? He had just been kind of commissioned as a deacon, and now he's um, fleeing to... uh, a foreign city, a city that has a very diverse culture and one which uh, there was not a lot of uh, evidence of Jesus' having been there. I mean, it was a heathen city. While we have evidence of Jesus having been there, we talk about the woman at the well and how he um, met her at the well in the outskirts of the city. She ended up going back to the city to tell everybody what he had shared with her. And then he went in and spent, we were 
presuming probably several days. And so the message had been there. So uh, Christianity was a known, at least there was a ripple of it through the city. Um, do you think that, uh, I mean, I, I guess I would posit that maybe Philip wasn't commissioned, having just been commissioned as a deacon, but that he was uh, fleeing for his life. He was saving his life by heading to Samaria and at that point kind of became an evangelist. He was uh, uh, introducing and furthering the, the good news in a foreign land. I noticed that the words paid close attention in when discussing about the f- miracles that Philip was doing. It says that in some versions, can you read in verse 6? Um, the crowds play, paid close attention to what Philip said. I have all listened carefully in one version. Mm-hmm. Another one is um, uh, attended to when you look at the, you know, the root word for that. I mean, they were very attentive to what he was doing. And it describes him as healing and casting out demons, um, which is a pretty sensational thing to be doing and getting attention. But as we read uh, next in verses 9 um, nine through 9 and 10, I guess we can say, 9 through 11, uh, basically we hear about Simon, the magician, who probably as his job performed magic tricks that apparently, at least the way I can read this, is uh, the level of sensationalism that the people were used to. So Philip coming in, in order to get their attention, one might think that he uh, was given the gift of healing and casting out demons in order to even get the attention of the people in in the place where he was living at that time. Because it seemed to me, as I I read this story, that Simon was sort of like the, the... The leader, not the voted leader, but he was the leader of that area. Sort of everybody listened to him. Simon before. the magician. Yeah, Simon the magician. Yeah. And then this new guy came to town that had a different slant on his message and was doing healing and casting out demons. What do you think about that? How did he become? How did he go from being a deacon to an evangelist and a healer and a magician in his own right? Is that the way God works? And do you think, uh, you know, later on in in those later verses, it describes the people paying attention to Simon the magician. They actually described it as being amazed and astonished at the magic trick. So at some point, I would uh, present the possibility that while given that um, gift initially, Things of the senses tend to dull. Most of us know that when you walk in a room or you, you know, or you smell a skunk, it doesn't keep assaulting your senses forevermore, amen. I mean, at, at some point, the sense of smell dulls, just like our sense of astonishment at um, the fact that we can pick up a telephone and call around the country, around the world, without dialing just a few extra numbers. I mean, we have um, lost a lot of our amazement in things that we see every single day. So while good for a grab attention grabber to begin with i i would say that um those sort of things die out pretty relatively quickly quickly and there needs to be more substance behind that and yet i wonder if maybe one of the ways when we talk about evangelism or entering into cultures i think there's a phrase cross-cultural evangelism um 
maybe one of the things that we can learn, one of the principles the Bible's bringing out here is that start with that which the people can relate to. Start with what's um, their language, their, their uh, in this case, their level of sensationalism that they probably required even to get their attention. We talked a lot uh, in our Bible study going through the Old Testament now how God got people's attention through some rather drastic and seemingly dastardly acts. So um, how is it in our life today when we think about going outside of our, either our neighborhood, our church, uh, even our work sphere, if we're, if we're not in, an, in a, uh, an Adventist or a, a comfortable work zone, how is it that we reach people who are diverse from us in our everyday lives? I just think through love, um, I think that other people who maybe aren't Christians or who are Christians but aren't where, um, I don't want to say where they need to be, but maybe got to see Jesus as love. I have seen Jesus in people's eyes. Like when I wasn't a Christian, I could look in someone's eyes and see the kindness that Jesus has. And so I just think through love and example, maybe not even saying a word, but just by being, we can definitely show people Jesus. And so practically, how does that happen when, if, if it's a stranger, like you're on a street, how do you show people love? How practically do you do that? Can you do that? Smile. Certainly, I, you know, I grew up in New York City, and I will say that one of the most unusual things is to look people in the eye and smile on a subway. <laughs> that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. And, you know, I've had people, you know, I won't say that they come up and comment, but if I do strike up a conversation, they'll say, we knew you were a tourist. Not, I mean, I'm not wearing cameras. <laughs> I'm not wearing Bermuda shorts and a Hawaii shirt and, you know, a, a Yankees cap or something. But, you know, there's just a freshness, I think. So what you're saying is even just making eye contact and um, smiling. What about on the plane? You know, now you're, uh, you're, everybody's out of their comfort zone and we might be stuck on the tarmac and uh, or traveling cross country or, you know, a night flight and, how, how um, if you were to strike up a conversation with someone, are you able to be culturally relevant to where you can draw enough out of that person to find what's relevant to them to where at least even strike up a conversation, possibly a friendship or at least a, an airline friendship? You have children. You ask how you do. Yeah, asking about their family, asking about what seems to be important. I mean, if you look at their, you know, I would think if they're wearing a, a fancy schmancy watch or something, kind of getting an idea of maybe what's important to them and being able to talk on a realm that's uh, uh, par, potentially par with them. Um, um, let me just tell you one instance. Paul and I were on a plane. Oh, I guess it wasn't but more than a half a year ago. And we uh, were the last ones on. It was Southwest, you know, where you have to find your own seat. And we were happy to find two seats together since we were the last one on the plane. But uh, no one had sat beside this guy because he was a Rastafarian. And... And if you don't know what a Rastafarian is, uh, look it up on the internet and see the kinds of pictures you find. But this guy was dark-skinned and had two long braids. And on the top of his head, he had all these um, dreadlocks. 
and he and then he had a hat on top of that you know one of these little skull caps kind of like and he dressed really weird I mean th I think he had a robe on and no wonder no one sat beside him and um, when we struck up a conversation with him he was a very loving guy and we started talking politics and what he thought about the state of the world etc and he was really quite a very loving man very full of love wanted to make sure other people knew he was of love but he looked very scary all right different he looked very different yes and scary to me all right i don't know if paul would use those same adjectives but uh, he looked scary to me but in the end we exchanged emails um he had his own website he had created his own music and wanted us to get one of his cds and um and his music was about being loving and uh, service-oriented to different people. It was just really an interesting conversation, and I'm sure many of you have had the same kind of things, but I, it struck me really uh, quite an interesting flight. <laughs> but that is the way that you get um, interesting friendships, is by finding out what are they all about, even behind their facade. I think, then you made the point that only if then people see that in you, and I guess there's a receptiveness, and I think that the Holy Spirit touches our hearts to um, discern whether people are receptive to hear anything more. I don't even think that on a first, second, third, or whatever round, it's necessarily time to uh, present particular issues. It's, I think it's getting to know people, getting to know what they're, what's important to them, and then maybe where their answers are not meeting the needs that life has presented them, whether life experience is such that they're finding the gap. And, um, you know, I guess that does go back to the whole idea of being in tune with the Holy Spirit to discern people's receptiveness. But it seems to me that certainly what Scripture's saying is that, and we'll move right now on to the story of Philip and the eunuch, where... Um, uh, where we see this demonstrated again and again, that we're, we're met where we're at and then hopefully drawn from that point at the time when the Holy Spirit has had an opportunity to touch their hearts and help them see their need. Well, for example, when Philip um, walked away from Samaria and was drawn somewhere else and then found that eunuch in the chariot, what was his, what, did he have a question? Did he just jump on and say, let me share with you what this is all telling all about? Did he, was he really caustic to this guy? I think this really shares with us the principles of what um, Karen was just saying as well. What is it about, how is it that you approach people with the gospel? And do you always have that motivation of, okay, I'm going to make sure he knows what my theology is? Should we read that story? Okay. Someone want to read um, Acts 8, 26 through 31? And the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go towards the south, unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is the desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of India, eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, um, reading Isaiah the prophet. And the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself into this chariot. 
Philip ran thither to him, heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I accept some man to guide me? And he desired Philip that he should come up and sit with him. So, and he goes on to re- read the scripture um, from Isaiah. We can get there, but you know, just to imagine this here, Philip, the Lord speaks to him and says, "Go down to this particular road." He sees the the Ethiopian eunuch, and he's told to kind of go alongside the 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 spirit system, go alongside the chariot and stay with it. At some point. You know, one could say, you'd think with that kind of a lead-in that Philip would have every reason to say, I've got the good news, you know, I've got it, like, I've been sent to you, here I am. But he simply asked, I mean, and then to look here, the, the Ethiopian eunuch was indeed, it says he was an important officer responsible for taking care of her money. He was like the treasurer for the queen. Who's the FEO, CFO. 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 <laughs> Chief financial <laughs> officer for the queen. And, and he's from another cult, he's from another culture, easily in another continent, Ethiopia, the African continent. He's in a chariot reading scripture. This apparently was unusual. They didn't all have the scrolls. I mean, he must have been a really important person to have even a copy of scripture and then be reading it. There were all sorts of reasons why this was such a unique uh, situation. And Philip handles it, I just think, so classy by asking the question only, do you understand what you're reading? I was wondering about when he left the chariot or whatever it was, uh, and the man wondered how he went. It doesn't say he yes, and then he was somewhere else. Yes. Yeah, well, that's probably part of that. I mean, if the Lord's speaking to him, the Spirit's leading him, and that, that he can be transported somewhere, I guess seems um, right in line with that. He was there no more. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that seem to you as far as uh, lead-in lines to talk with people? Has that worked for you? You know, some people might say, you know, he basically climbed in and sat with him and started reading the Scripture, and, he, and it, we know it as Isaiah 57, but of course back then it was a scroll and it was just where he was in the scroll. Um, is the scripture telling us that we should all start our cross-cultural evangelism with a uh, discussion of Isaiah 53? <laughs> Probably not. You know, I'd, I'd like to look at the principle that scripture is telling us that he offered him an opportunity to, one, decide if he even wanted to talk about it. You know, just because he was reading scripture didn't necessarily mean he wanted to talk with Philip about it. It was so respectful, and it was so, I like the word winsome. It was a winsome way of opening the conversation at the point that the person, in this case the eunuch, wanted to, wanted to address it. And in fact, by asking, do you understand it, it's not even saying, oh, I see you're reading Isaiah 53. Let me tell you about that. He waited until he asked, which seems to me a whole lot uh, more fruitful way of discussing anything with people is to wait and hear if they're open to a discussion. I think it has to do with your own persona, how open you are. If people can see that you um, look them in the eye and that you recognize them as people and you show concern for them, then they're much more willing to talk to you and share what they feel about life with you. So it's a lot how you come, how you start your day even. You can start your day by saying, 
God, make me receptive to other people. Help me to see their needs. Rather than help me find the people that need to hear the good right. news. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's a good way. Mm-hmm. What were you going to say? Well, I just think, like, throughout the service stories of the book, you see um, the service principle played out. Because he was open to God in the beginning to serve people in whatever way that he could, um, God was able to use him in any different circumstances to accomplish his work. Um, and just by, like she was saying, seeing the needs of somebody else, that's how he was able to do all these different things to put people's needs, no matter where they were, and he was just open to this principle. Linda, you were starting to say something? Well, um, also, when you, I think the principle here is not that we start with Isaiah 53, or not even that we are looking for other people's needs, but are we finding out, do they want to hear this? Are they receptive? I mean, many times I've found myself talking to somebody who doesn't even want to talk about that subject, you know? Maybe they have a concern about their, uh, their aunt or their little girl that, you know, that is worrying them, and they'd rather talk about that than the actual good news. And until you actually um, talk to them about what they're concerned about or what they want to talk about, you're really not going to get through, are you? Their needs are first. Right. And so, again, like this young lady said, it is all about listening and being a servant to those that we meet and having that attitude of um, I'm willing to serve whoever comes my way doesn't necessarily mean I'm ready to give the good news gospel, you know, in three sentences or less. How effective do you think that battering ram type of... Uh evangelism would have worked here or how have you seen that work the the battering ram meaning basically i'm here to tell you the good news i've got it you obviously don't (laughs) and i'm gonna what is the good news the good news is loving others like god loves you it isn't necessarily every doctrine in the book it's just sharing the love god is love and he wants us to be loving to others that's the good news as opposed to, let me give you all the doctrines that are important to me. And also, I think that we live in a society of instant gratification, and we live in a fast-paced world, and so we often lose the virtue of patience. So we think, oh, I have this person, I have to tell them now, I might not ever have another chance. So we forget that God works, you know, He makes all things beautiful in His time, and we just have to be patient. And through us, through them, he's working on their hearts. Eventually, we will be able to share that good news with them. Maybe not in our timing, but in his timing. Or maybe it won't be you. It'll be someone else. And you've kind of uh, spread the, the seed. So, Lisa, how do you spread your, the gospel you described with someone who might not phrase the gospel that way? They might say, yes, the gospel is love. The God is love. But he's also all this. And they might have a different um, emphasis than you do on love. How do you spread the gospel who, to someone who has a different picture of the gospel? Well, you don't try to criticize them and not agree with them. You just say, well, I can see your point of view. Um, and just try to be open to their, their uh, thinking without being critical of it. And live um, the kind of life that you believe that you should be living. Even though you know that your gospel, you've got the 
I think there's truth that I don't think we own the truth. I think that there's truth in every, um, not even just Christians. I think that the Muslims have truth as well. I think God has shared truth with the whole world, and some people have picked up on different parts of that truth. But I think everybody um, understands what love is. Um, I don't think that that's exclusive to us. So I think that there's good in everything. Do you find it easier to find the good in, say, Muslim or foreign religions than someone who's sitting next to you in church and who's amening something that you're, you know, you're listening to the sermon and it's flying all over you in a negative way? It can be irritating to hear somebody <laughs> saying amen right behind you in church, but you kind of have to zone through that and just let that be and not try to focus on that, focus on what you want to hear. But I mean, to relate to that person... Is it sometimes easier to relate to someone who's so foreign that where you just find that simple love, we can all relate to love, but to that person who... Um, you think my negative feelings, which I don't think I would have. See, I don't think I would have negative feelings towards them. I would just understand that that's where they're coming from. I do. I find it harder. Because that's my ego talking. Oh, you're disturbing me. I don't like it. Oh, no, I'm not talking about the amen. I'm talking about the fact that they're saying amen to something that is not a positive thing to you. Like, in other words, that we, found, we find nuance in our theology with our next-door neighbor in sitting in our church. Right. It almost seems harder to find common ground or to talk openly and lovingly right. with that person than it does the Rastafarian sitting on the plane. Right. I mean, because we think they am I the only person? Yeah. I yeah. Mean, For example, you know, they were very legalistic in the Jewish days, right? As we as a church tend to be. Right. Um, and uh, I think sometimes we that are uh, in the, the, the view of the larger view where we think about, we try to think about God in a, in a larger view. We think, well, we've got it over those other Adventists over there. And I think we need to be careful. I think it's harder. I think what Karen's saying is harder sometimes to talk to the person that is more bound up in the legalism of Christianity than it is to talk about love to someone else on the street. And we have to be really careful we that we're not battering. Yeah, no, we have to be careful that we're not battering even our our Christian friends within our church. Right. Um, and does this principle of uh, sharing the the gospel or sharing your ideas the way that Philip did with the eunuch by asking questions? Are you open to um, understanding it a different way? Uh, might be a good principle to follow. Um, or you might say it like this, I, I, I think I, in, in my view, or the way I see it is such and such, as opposed to, well, what are you thinking, you know? And or thumping and proving. I mean, many times being proven wrong, what is it, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. So we can win the argument. If you have spent enough time, you can win the argument, but lose truly the friendship and lose the whole point of it. And I think that's a challenge because I would say that people who attend the Sabbath school and people who have been working on their understanding of God and how this all makes sense, um, it's almost infectious like you you're so wanting to share that with others that 
I, I wonder sometimes whether we don't need um, kind of sensitization lessons or whatever to teach us how to best uh, share that. Um, uh, because I think, you know, either asking questions, it seems like such a winsome way. When we look at this story so objectively, um, you think, wow, that was brilliant. It was just a brilliant introduction to this discussion. And I wonder if that doesn't uh, prove so in our everyday lives as well. I think uh, for myself, I, I work with kids a lot, teenagers and college kids a lot. And what I think is um, fun is to be able to ask questions to get to the point where they now recognize that what they thought they had all tied up, they don't. Like, they thought they had all the dots connected, and it's not to leave them flapping in the breeze, but it's to have that moment of, you know, they don't necessarily say, I need your opinion, or I need it, but it's like, wow, I never really thought about that. And then as a kind of a rescue measure to say, if they were in relationship with you, then they could say, I never thought of that before. What does one do when A to B to C, and now how do I get to F to G? Like, how do I get there? Um and I think that's kind of what we're um, talking about in sharing the gospel. It's walking with someone through the A, B, C, D, E. And then if, if they get to somewhere and they're finding that there's not a stepping stone, there's not a familiar letter of the alphabet, um, maybe saying, well, I've always found that going to F and G is the best way to get to H, you know, and, and maybe sharing your pathway. And then it's, um, I guess... I think that's a winsome way of doing that, and I would think that somebody would have the opportunity to say, I don't really see the need to go to H. You know, I'm fine at D, and I just would like to stay at D. And I think that then respectfully <laughs> honoring people's decision to stay at D and is, is just fine. They may not be ready to move on. I don't really know that none of us are doing this. <laughs> <laughs> because one person believes something, that doesn't necessarily mean that we, we have a thought on it. I think that allows us for humility, and that allows for us to say, well, the way I understand it, or in my study, it's looked this way. How is it, you know, how is it for you? And um, I think that really affords us humility, which goes a long way in sharing with people, I've found. I think that's good. Yes? I think also, when they were healing, I think they were doing a lot of listening and a lot less sharing. And uh, I think that breaks down prejudice because with the message that is misunderstood and labeled, that you have to be very careful. And that's, I think, when they're filled with the Spirit. They did more listening than they did speaking. Well, I just want to go back to, you know, when we were looking, reading Acts 6 in verse 3, it said, Seven men of honest report full the Holy Ghost and wisdom. And so when we're reading this over here about Philip, we're realizing he was full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. So he didn't approach of his own thinking like, oh, here's someone I can witness to. I think we have to be careful to to just go about thinking this is someone I need to witness to me unless the Spirit leads you to. We can't know if their heart is receptive and ready. If their heart is receptive and ready and the Spirit moves you, then it's always going to be a good win-win situation, sharing of, of love, of knowledge. 
but they you don't do it unless the spirit knows they're ready for it. So I think it's not so much, you know, looking at people, should I witness to that person or not? I think if the spirit moves you to, you'll know what to say because it's not your words. We use that terminology a lot. We're filled with the Holy Spirit or Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that actually mean to you? Let's break it down a little bit. I think to me, it means you really don't do anything in your life without asking the Lord. You know, you're not really thinking, hmm, we're supposed to witness more. I, I've just seen that with people. That You know, I used to be that way. Okay, I see that person over there, and I can talk with people, and I go witness to them. And where the Lord has helped me to see is you wait. You pray, you ask, and you wait, and you let the Lord work out the circumstances. And I have seen it where it's amazing where suddenly... I was like, went to a laundromat. We're on the road working and um, go to a laundromat. And I just prayed, Lord, if there's someone in here I should talk to, I'm willing to. But if not, you know, you know if, if they need someone to talk to. Because in the past, what I would have done is gone up and just direct up a conversation and know it's a chance to witness. But it's amazing to me if you wait and let the Lord work out the circumstances. It's like a lady come over to me. It's actually a, someone in her 20s. And she said, I just felt impressed I needed to come talk to you. She said, I'm having some terrible problems. I'm pregnant. You know, this is my boyfriend and this is this. I just don't know what to do. And I just felt impressed to come talk to you. So to me, if you will let the Spirit work it out rather than us working the Spirit. So is it an attitudinal change then that you have to me? I wouldn't call that. I don't know, I don't think attitude's the right word. I think it's more a wait and let the Spirit move you rather than you trying to work the Spirit. There are some times when actions speak much louder than words, too. What you can do physically and not. That's what my point was, that he did more physical work and healing and touching the people than he did sharing the good news. He was sharing the good news silently, and that was much more powerful than giving them a Bible study. We can give all the Bible studies we want, but without the spirit and the love and the character of God mixed with it, it's worthless. But we're probably not going to do a whole lot of miracles like Stephen did today. Yes, we are. Uh, of healing and yes. touching. I believe it, it's, it's prophesied. It's in Joel. It's in Joel. Exactly. It's coming. Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. Now, whether we personally will have a part in it, we might misinterpret it and say, oh, I'm sorry, that's got the wrong doctrine with it. So you might miss the boat mm-hmm. if you're not open. Just wanted to comment. This also on this story of Philip um, with the Ethiopian eunuch. It says that he had been to Jerusalem to worship. He had the scriptures. He was studying Isaiah. He had been there at a time where they're being persecuted. You know, all over what? Whether this Jesus person was really the Messiah, the fulfillment of Isaiah. You know, so this was not someone. That did not already. This person had read the scriptures, knew the scriptures, was studying. I mean, while he's traveling in a chariot. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, it wasn't someone just when he had time back at home to study. I mean, he was earnestly wanting to know the answer. 
Well, Mrs. White tells us that he had gone to Jerusalem and what had been disappointed in what he found there. Oh, wow. And so he was traveling back. You were talking about what the spirit is when God breathed into Adam the breath of life. That was his life, his spirit, his love into Adam to make him come alive. Yeah. We all have God's spirit within us as life. And if we're open to that life, God's life in us, then we can let his spirit out to others and share that with others. It's already there. We just have to accept it and be willing to be used by mm-hmm. which are probably what you're talking about are some of the fruits of the spirit this patience which you're also saying patience and love of what the needs are like she's saying mm-hmm. being in the spirit being willing to be used by the spirit. Mm-hmm. and still having that servant like attitude okay good we haven't gotten into the story we only have a few more minutes of simon um and how he was the magician and and he actually believed what uh, Philip was saying and and then he became he the Bible tells us he was baptized but he still didn't get it did he because now he was still watching Philip after he was baptized and he wanted to buy Peter and John when they came down to Mm -hmm. help and they were laying on hands and filling people with the Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. he said let me buy that I want to buy that what was their response you remember it's not for sale. It's a gift. <laughs> not only is it not for sale, but what else did they tell him? He needed to repent. In verse 20, chapter 8, verse 20. There are several rather graphic. If anybody has the message Bible, it's rather graphic what he says. My good news says, Peter answered him and said, May you and your money go to hell. For thinking that you can buy God's gift with money. Whoa. <laughs> what does some of your Bibles say? Perish, not go to hell, but perish. Okay. That you perish? No, that the silver is. No, mine. Yeah, mine says you and your money should both be destroyed. Go ahead. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, if God perhaps, the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. So what does that mean to you? Not just condemning him and saying, you know, you... But I see that you're in the the bond of Satan, even though you've been baptized and something is calling you to God, you haven't totally surrendered yourself to Him. There's still something in your past life that has you bound. That you want that power instead of wanting that servanthood. Isn't that a difference? And that was quite evidenced by Simon's response, which basically isn't um, defensiveness. He comes out with, well then please, both of you, pray pray for me to the Lord so that things you have said will not happen to me. In a way, that consternation that peter started with was it was so harsh and it would the character of simon was yet to be discerned whether he was indeed that money grubbing that he just wanted that that act he wanted to add that act to the rest of his magic acts but indeed it seemed to bring out that heart of repentance that he says please pray for me um interestingly enough uh we have two baptisms in this chapter 
because the eunuch also, as they were traveling, the eunuch asks, please, can we stop and, you know, be baptized? And we certainly don't have time to go through um, the principles of baptism, but it seems to me that um, the baptism that's referred to here is not one that is wrought at the end of uh, a long Bible study and a long, uh, you know, going through not even just doctrines, but certainly including doctrines and uh, high points, that there is apparently these baptisms were done at the very, very beginning of their journey, and maybe it afforded them, uh, it was a cultivating, fertilized field for them to then build the rest of their life experiences um, and develop their Christianity, develop their faith. Mm -hmm. Continue to grow. I think we're out of time, and thank you for all your participation. And let's just end with prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you again for the opportunity to study your word. And I pray that we might be filled with the Holy Spirit, that we might understand how to be servants for you and friends at the same time, that we might have that service attitude as we leave here to love one another and to um, continue to cultivate that harmonious attitude with each other and those that we serve and work with. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.